at some of the, the issues our young people faced going into COVID with education. Some of our, fa- well, a lot of our families were trying to access online learning with three kids in the house and the only device they had was a mobile phone. They, they don't have laptops and kind of addressing some of that inequity is going to be essential moving forward. I'm Neil Maggs and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this episode of Bristol Unpacked, we talk education as the kids go back to school with head teacher Samantha Williamson. She is in charge of the Hartcliffe-based Merchants Academy. We explore the recent A-level and GCSE debacle that saw the downgrading of grades in some state schools and the upgrading in some private schools. We talk about how COVID has affected them over the last three months and what kind of changes can we expect for pupils as they go back this week. And white working-class boys, the lowest attainment in the UK, have they been left behind and what can we do about it? Do you prefer me to call you Sam or Samantha? I'm Sam, always. Sam, not Mrs Williamson then? I'm Muz, but I'm always Sam. You're Muz. Well, because I know school teachers, I always used to, used to get in trouble if you, you called them by their Christian name. Well, correct, but I'm not your school teacher, am I, Neil? <laughs> no, you're not. Very, very true, very true. Great. So you're, you're head of Merchants Academy and um, obviously, you know, education hit the news, hasn't it, this last couple of weeks. Being head of a, a school which is in South Bristol in a recognised area of deprivation how did you feel with the whole kind of a level algorithm thing so well it was it was pretty predictable to be honest with you so there was a consultation period with Ofqual and everyone was invited to contribute to it and I was part of a group of heads of similar types of schools across the country and we made representations right at the beginning because the the element of the algorithm that was always going to disadvantage schools like us was that historic performance was being taken into account so they would take the the teachers then to assess grades but then apply like a curve that was from the previous year's performance and if you've got a school that's on an improvement curve you are automatically going to downgrade students results so it was it was well known right from the beginning well so a lot of teachers were aware this was coming then absolutely wow okay and and what was the feeling amongst staff in your school or, or beyond that? So the general the general feeling around it was was one of disbelief, really, to be honest with you, to start with, um, because we we knew exactly what would happen in terms of results. So you also used a computer program which mimicked what the algorithm was going to do. So we we all ran our results through that, and we could see in advance exactly what would happen when the algorithm was applied so to be honest with you we were all pretty cross that it was going to take place and quite a lot of us in our conversations were of a mind that when it became apparent to the public in general what this would actually mean we were pretty confident that it it would get reversed at some point the the biggest issue of all has been that it's taken so long for that to happen yeah, I mean, and, and that climb down has come now, hasn't it? Yeah. And is there, obviously, I presumably you feel pleased that has happened, but do you feel forgiving to the government 
for the way it was sort of cack-handedly dealt with in the first place? I think it, I'm not sure it's, it's about that really in terms of forgiveness. However, what it has displayed, I think, is that the link between education and politics at times is not a helpful one because what you've got sometimes are people who are are not experts in the profession making decisions without enough consultation with the profession. You know, there's quite a lot of professional bodies that could have been consulted and would have said, this is going to happen and you need to listen. What's happened is very reactive leadership. That's not the way to do it. We are in uncharted territory mm-hmm. um, to give the benefit of the doubt, but there seems yep. a lot of things that under public and um, political pressure does seem to be being reversed um, yeah. you know, throughout this whole kind of COVID period. Yeah. Um, why do you think it resonated so much with, with the general public? Because even, even staunch supporters of, of Boris and the government, just a sense of unfairness, a sense yeah. of almost classism being yeah. back on the table in this country. Yeah. I think it's a sense of injustice, because actually, even when we had the original process in place, there was no right of appeal. Now, that's just not even British, is it? (laughs) Whatever (laughs) scenario you've got, you should always have a right of appeals. But it was always going to hit communities in which there's been historic underachievement, which will be communities which are economically deprived. And it's that that just that sense of injustice. And then on an individual basis, when you actually think about what it means, it's ludicrous. So essentially, if you were a 15, 16 year old now, and you had just taken your exams, but your results weren't going to be the ones you held in your hand, essentially, the results you're going to hold in your hand were someone else's from last year. The way the algorithm essentially worked was you, you the teachers are entering their results, you know, for, for, for good or worse, you know, and, and I can tell you now we did it rigorously and we didn't inflate our grades. They were then run through this curve. So if you imagine um, a dot and line graph where you've got the, the, the national average running through the centre of it in terms of progress and then every dot is a child. What was happening is that the dot that would have been your child, for example, isn't actually. Because actually what it's done is it's gone, the, the graph has gone, what did it look like last year? Now let's just position you all in a similar place. I see. Okay, which is why, because so, so, it, it had a twofold effect, didn't it? it yep. Not only were pupils from schools in certain areas ineffectively kind of downgraded, yep. if you were at private schools, yep. they were upgraded. Yeah, absolutely. Because the historic trend there was a particularly strong one. You know, we do we do live. You know, I think we do live in a a, a society where we um, there is more kind of class division, than, or it's an unspoken elephant in yeah. the room. You know, there are you know the equalities of opportunities. We've had a long kind of debate and a long kind of uh, thing around a Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement and institutional racism. Mm. Uh, and I wonder whether some of the issues around poverty and deprivation and class maybe have, have, have got lost a little bit. And with this whole um, a level debacle. It's it's thrown that wide open again. Yeah, I think so. I, I, not to belittle the the Black Lives Matter debate, it, it it's a very relevant um, debate, and it's one that should have been had a long time ago in Bristol. I think we would probably both agree with that. However, we mustn't in in that forget about social inequity, essentially, you know, and for the South Bristol community, that's a huge issue. When you look at some of the the issues our young people faced going into COVID with education, some of our, well, a lot of our families were trying to access online learning with three kids in the house, and the only device they had was a mobile phone. They, They don't have laptops, and kind of addressing some of that inequity is going to be essential moving forward. One of the positives, I think, is that it's brought it out into the daylight, hasn't it? And I think we're we're becoming super aware that that kind of inequity still exists in our society. The fact that some of our families 
struggle that much that we needed to deliver packed lunches during COVID is a wake up call to some people. I, you know, I had some sort of more middle class people say to me, you know, out in the community, do they really need that packed lunch? And, and you're kind of like, you're out of touch. Yeah, they really do. Yeah. Yeah. But because I suppose it's quite divorced from some people's reality, isn't it? Yeah. Is that it has brought this, you know, to people's attention. It's brought people's to consciousness yes. a bit more, you know, and we've heard a lot, a lot around how people from black and minority communities have been affected by COVID. And I think the conversation, yeah. as you say, is long overdue, you know, as well. Yes. But I also think that those, those are often for social and economic reasons. And, and actually some, some people from white working class communities up and down the country have been hit hugely and massively hard. And perhaps it's looking for those sort of positions of, of, of solidarity on this. Yeah. And, I think know, so. When did you take over at, at Merchants? Uh, two years five months ago something like that just before it went into special measures particularly you are very passionate around sort of addressing issues of social inequality is that is that your kind of driver really absolutely and they are the kind of schools I've always worked in when I wanted to come back to the west country this was the only school I applied to you know because it's particular issues that are around it but also opportunities I could see would fit my kind of style of leadership and social inequality is something I'm truly passionate about. When I grew up in the Forest of Dean, yeah. education was selective still. I got into the grammar yeah. school and my brothers didn't. And actually, I became really aware of the difference in the kind of opportunities I had compared to my brothers. And we were in the same house. You know, I had free school meals for a period of time when I was at school because my dad was out of work. So, yeah, I, I'm completely aware of it. But I also know that there's a huge amount of untapped potential within those communities. You know, Ishai Molloy Miller that I, I, I tweeted about is a phenomenally capable young person, but who hadn't previously done particularly well because she'd not had the opportunities. And we're, we're missing something if we don't draw out the talent of the kids in our community. So your school is based in, in Hartcliffe, yeah. Yeah. you know, covers the kind of Hengrove area as well. Yeah. Anybody listening to this that's familiar with the landscape of Bristol will know many reports of, of multiple deprivation indices, often yeah. you know, Hartcliffe is at one of the highest, not just yeah. in the Bristol, but in the UK. In terms of education, what are the main obstacles and challenges you have to have to wrestle with when you came in? So initially it was to get the faith of the community, to be honest with you. So I think it, the community itself knew that all was not well in the school. To be fair, they had become distanced, I think, from the school. When I first arrived, the community wasn't particularly welcomed in, you know, and there was almost an adversarial approach. And then when it went into special measures, which I knew it was going to, you know, I I knew I was taking a school that would be in special measures. It was about listening to them initially. I had parents came in to see me and said, we could have told you this school was like this. And And I was kind of like, yeah, I'm sure you could because you're the people experiencing it with your young people. But then it's, it took a good year or so before we could kind of build some bridges and, and get the support of the families. And I think some of our families are mistrustful of education because they didn't have a great experience of it themselves. And a lot of it is it's kind of building bridges with the community, getting them to trust us and making sure we're providing a really good quality of education that they deserve. My background is community development, sport development, yeah. young people. And I used to link in with quite a lot of schools. And it's interesting you say that about engaging with the community being your first priority because yeah. my experience was that sometimes it seemed as if the world stopped and finished at half past yeah. three. Is, is that something that's definitely changed and shifted in the education sector recently? Or is that kind of something that you just personally have, think, have that kind of approach? 
I think it's different in different types of schools and different types of communities. You have to have the families on board. You have to have them sending their children to school. But yeah. they've got to believe that their kids are going to get a worthwhile experience and see what the point of that is to do it. So I think you might find there are other schools that aren't particularly community based. So there are some, you know, in, in the bigger cities where they take from really wide area and the kids are all bussed in. And they tend to be slightly different in tenor than that. But, but for a school within its community, you, you've got to work with it. Yeah, I mean, you've got some uh, you've some schools like that in the city, haven't you? That, yeah. You know, we, we talk a lot about issues and problems and challenges, but also I think sometimes what, what I quite like about you, and you do push back a little bit, particularly at the media, where yeah. there is often a kind of lazy narrative of yeah. um, communities like Hartcliffe yeah. um, and young people that come from those areas because it's good copy to, you know, to come from a difficult yeah. area and all these obstacles. But it's also important to raise aspirations and hope and opportunity. And that, that's key yeah. Uh, otherwise, I think well, even the word deprivation, what kind of message does that send exactly. to people that live in those communities? <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. We have a lot of conversations about that in school, because when I, I've spoken to some young people and they talked about not being proud of their own community. And I kind of said, There's, there is no reason to, to not be proud of your community, because there are things that happen within it that I've never seen happen anywhere else before. So we had a young lad who was run over. You know, that's the first death I've experienced within a school setting. When that right. happened yeah. and we did an appeal to support the family with funds, every single child came in that following day and they weren't bringing in, you know, 50p to put in the bucket. I had families rolling up, putting £10 notes in and £20 notes in because what it is, is a very tight knit community that will take care of its own when it needs to. And you d- there yeah. are some places yeah. in the country you just don't get that kind of strength of support. And in terms of the antisocial behaviour, do you know what? It's a really small number of young people that are disaffected that are involved in that. The vast majority of kids just want to get on with their lives, really. And I guess that's the stuff that the media will often zone in on because it's, yeah. it comes to them via uh, press releases from the police or comes to them from a, a, an issue that the council's dealing with, but don't always necessarily take the time to to drill in. There's so many other stories to tell, aren't there? You know, there are so many more yeah. inspirational young people out there that are doing amazing things. Yeah, you're right. And the counter argument to that is often, oh, it's, you know, you're sort of romanticising or smoothing over issues. And and it's like, well, that's not the case because reality is both. And as you say about the the tight knit community stuff, and I've witnessed that myself in my professional life and in personal life and certainly communities like Noel West and and Hartcliffe. There were fears from police and from council how the community were going to react to lockdown. We're going to be seeing waves of young people causing antisocial behaviour. And when I... I, I spoke to one of the youth workers there. He said, well, he said, part of me expected that. But do you know what? It, the, the community stepped up. Yeah. And actually, and it showed its true colours and the cream rises to the top, like you said, in, posi- yeah. you know, in, in adversity. And, and, and on that, you spoke earlier about lunches and you, you were out and about in the community. Yeah. Certainly your staff were yeah. um, supporting young people when the schools were shut. Did, yeah. you, did you feel that same sense of sort of gun, Dunkirk spirit, camaraderie yeah. kind of when you were yeah. out and about? Absolutely. So when I first tweeted that we were doing it on that very first day, I got a raft of emails from local companies. For example, there was a company that was a move, a removal company that said, we can't move anybody's house at the moment. We've got nothing else to do with our vans. We'll come and drive for you. You know, then a local fish and chip shop that said, for your families who've not got anything, we've got a whole load of fish and chip shops, can't operate safely at the moment. We'll cook them for your families. Would you like to deliver them? Amazing. Yeah, yeah, they did, absolutely. 
I, I think I always I always remember, you know, and it's not to. I think I get accused sometimes of being a bit a reverse snob, <laughs> down, a bit a bit down on more affluent kind of areas. But in my uh, in my in my youth and the school holidays, I used to collect money for kidney research in the tins mm. with a couple of mates. We used to do it to earn a few quid when we were kind of like sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, we would go all across Bristol. It, we'd go to some sort of around Clifton and other areas, up, you know, Stoke Bishop and stuff. And we wouldn't get much. People would kind of nod and stuff. When we would go to places like Bedminster. No West, we'd go to Hartcliffe by the shops. We would get about three times as much money. And people yeah. were genuinely wanting, they would say, oh, my auntie used to have oh, problems with the kidneys. And quite possibly the reason for that is when you go to council estates, you do get intergenerational families living there together and you do get yeah. people that stay there. Whereas I think perhaps in other areas in the city where people buy houses and move and move around, perhaps yeah. you don't have that sense of community as much. Yeah, quite quite possibly. And I think... I think that you know, there are pros and cons to it, aren't there? So it, it, it's great that they do have that tight knit community. But at the same time, we kind of need to enable our young people to get out and about a bit more. I think one of the one of the, the most shocking things I find about Bristol is there is no funded youth bus pass. And it's two buses to get into the centre of Bristol from Withywood. Yeah. So our young people in Withywood aren't getting out and about. And there's always been rumours of some young people in Withywood and Arcliffe that have never been to the centre. Yeah, that your world is so small, and you're right. You know, as much there's positives and negatives, and I think you know I've made documentaries in the area and spoken to young people, and and often when you talk about aspiration and opportunity, that you can you can sense you can sense how narrow that is. That yeah. the world feels a smaller place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when I worked in Dover, I had quite a lot of ex London graduates working in my school, and I had yeah. a, a head of maths who kind of helped me to really understand the difference and he he grew up in a very very poor family and he said no matter how poor my background was Sam he said and no matter how poor anybody's background is in London he said you can see the top of Canary Wharf from wherever you are he said so you kind of know what it is that you're trying to get to and he said but sometimes for communities sort of further out they they're not quite sure what it looks like when you when it is affluent well, yeah, because you're so far removed from it, particularly yeah. a city like Bristol, who, you know, the, the tra- dare I say, the, the transport infrastructure is not great. It's not. Um, and, you know, as you say, you've got to get two buses to get from one side of the city to another. Yeah. My sense is some of those communities on the on the fringe of South Bristol that border your school, they feel that acutely. Yes. So if you have those conversations, they do feel that they are not part of yeah. this kind of Bristol story of, you know, uber cool progression and yeah top 10 Bristol come and live in the city so they're they're not part of that it is, and it does feel like a different world there are things we can do about it though I, I have to yeah. say and, and um one like, of the what, things what, what can we do what can we do well one of the things we're doing as a school and as a trust actually is we're putting together um a, a sort of a social entitlement passport so one of the things we do get from our sponsors is a, a an endowment fund essentially from the Society of Merchant Ventures that we can bid into and it yeah. has to be non-curricular so some of the things we've done with it are, for example, we take all of the kids to the Tate Gallery in London with it, fully funded. Those kind of things that perhaps middle class families take for granted, you know, go to a, a really good restaurant. So we're going to make sure that every child gets the opportunity to do that and not in a tokenistic way, essentially. Yeah. Do you know what? When kids that come out of my school are out to dinner somewhere, I'd like them to know which knife or fork they're using and not feel daunted by when they hit those situations. It's just leveling the playing field up a bit, really. It's giving it a little taster of, of, of what is possible. Yeah, absolutely. Literally, if you're in a restaurant, I suppose. Yes, indeed. Um, 
I hate it in the middle of a podcast when somebody jumps in to try and sell you something. It really does my head in. Join the Bristol Cable, the city's only community-owned newspaper. As a member from just £1 a month, you get to help steer the cable forward as we build an alternative to the failing mainstream media. Controversial, that is, that bit. That's a, That was from the producer that I read that. Cheers. You know, and you are funded, or uh, yes. the school is through the Society of Merchant Ventures. Yeah. Um, it would be remiss for me not to mention the whole Colston thing, I think, as, yeah. as we're talking and how that's kind of played out. And for somebody like yourself, yeah, uh, who's kind of passionate about attacking social deprivation, yeah. some of this stuff been a bit uncomfortable. See, the merchants have had to come out and give a kind of statement. How, how has that been for you and your staff that work under that brand, as it were? Yeah, so we've been we've been pleased with the response to all of that actually. Um, so what we know them as individuals, of course, and yeah. I've been aware obviously of the endowment fund and all the stuff that perhaps some of the public doesn't see about them. You know, the kind of work that they actually do. None of these people have to be governors in schools. You know, they mm. they do it because it's part of their remit of kind of paying back into society. And they do a really good job of it, actually. And the response, I think, in terms of um, opening up a, a really open consultation around the name of Colston Girls School has, has been great, actually, because not only have they consulted with, with the girls at the school, which is you know hugely important in staff, but they've actually opened it up to the public. And that's the right response, I think. It, would, was it a shame that it took the statue coming down for that, for more of those actions to take place? I think that's a really difficult one to answer because sometimes that's just the way change happens, isn't it, to be honest with you? And I think the thing to remember is that within that that community of that individual school, you know, you, what's got to happen actually is it, it's got to come from within to some extent, hasn't it? And, and, and those young people whilst we may not understand it, may well have been quite attached to the name of their school because they're kind of it, it, they hold it quite dear. And whilst we've got all these other pressures externally, which are quite rightly in the media, it, it, it's that tension, isn't it, between the two? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, and I think the wider debate, I think, around the merchants yeah. in general, not specifically in relation to education, it does definitely polarise people that think, well, actually, hang on a minute. Yes, there there is these sort of elitist connotations, but they do an awful lot of good. They fund different really organisations, education, all this kind Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. So it is a tricky one, I suppose. What it, what it has opened up is an, a need for everybody invested in what Bristol is actually have an open and honest conversation from the, from the get go, proactive in these decisions rather than just reactive. Yeah, and I, I think that's true. But I, but I think we're in a really interesting period of time, aren't we? I think where as we move through it I think we're learning some of those lessons actually and some conversations are taking place aren't they within education within within the city itself on a national scale that maybe people should have had before but you know we are getting to them now we've been addressing the Black Lives Matter issue within our school actually from prior to to sort of this 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 period of COVID. Which is interesting because yeah. obviously the majority of your young people are white yeah. and working class backgrounds. So yeah. and might might have been sort of fed some sort of racist stuff in you know yes. through maybe family background. So in terms of kind of just Britishness and British values, being non-judgmental is part of our remit within the curriculum in any case. And understanding other cultures is hugely important. So we have a programme of education that sits around that in any case, but we've kind of had a bit of a deeper look at it. 
I've got quite a talented leader of curriculum called Rob Williams. And he actually began a deep piece of work around investigating the um, history curriculum and ensuring that it's truly representative. And there are elements within it genuinely needed to be addressed because it didn't reflect the way history really was. So, for example, we were talking about the bus strike in America. But what you need to remember is is that had already happened in Bristol. (laughs) I think his name was Paul Stevenson, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, Guy Bailey. Yeah. So we've started to build some of those local elements into our curriculum. I certainly didn't do it in school. Yeah. And yet, you know, this was something that changed the the law in the whole of the UK. When I talk to friends of mine or or people I've been around that maybe, you know, aren't aren't living in the inner ring in the city that maybe do come from more kind of humble beginnings is that often they are the ones at the moment that are most angry that the statue has been taken down. They are the ones that kind of often will see Colston or see some of those more bigger kind of figures in history so almost like a bit of a doff the cap kind of yeah. uh, m- mindset towards it and and i think often there's a a negativity towards people for, for not being as enlightened enough to sort of get why that is however if you've never been taught that i i feel like my communities where i come from and and same yourself in the forest i think you know we've been cheated as well it, to a certain degree if somebody is holding slightly racist views or somebody is completely in the dark about the reality of colonialism and the reality of the transatlantic slave trade and is doffing their cap to the likes of Colson that's because nobody told us we 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 weren't educated to the reality so is there almost some leeway and understanding as to why adults and subsequently young people that you work with might hold some sort of unsavory views Hmm. so I think tracking it back to working out where the views come from actually is part of the solution because yeah. you can't redress it unless you, you fully understood why it is that way. I, that said, I completely understand the frustration at the other end of this, that these kind of views still persist in a modern yeah. society. It, and make no mistake, they are unacceptable. Sure. But it, but education is the answer to it. And there is very much the correcting of views, but being clear that that doesn't mean whitewashing things, you know. Yeah. These things did happen. There were some positive benefits from it, as as unsavoury as that is. And then there's making sure we got representation right. You know, I do have some black teachers and I have a black senior leader, but there are not enough black teachers across Bristol. And that's a fact. And we do need to address that. We need to ask the question why that is and and what can be done about it. For sure. Uh, And I think it's Aisha Thomas, isn't it? He was kind of been leading on that over in in City Academy, particularly probably in in the school in which she works and those in inner city where you have a very high percentage of black and ethnic minority pupils not seeing teachers that they can, in effect, sort of relate to. But I think it's also as relevant in a majority white working class community because actually we, we need to create an understanding right the way across the board you know, because they're, they're going to, you know, hopefully grow up. Some of them will go off to university, lots of them, hopefully, and meet people of all different faiths and races, you know, and they, they need to have an understanding of how to function in a multicultural society. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's equally important, isn't it? it, it in many regards, almost, yeah. <laughs> you could argue even more so. Absolutely. Um, I just want to pull back a little bit to COVID and lockdown and firstly say that you were all across the national media, not just the local media, weren't you? Around that that period. (laughs) Every time I put on the TV, it was, you know, you were on BBC (laughs) News, Victoria Derbyshire Show, Channel 4, Radio 5. Have you got an agent yet? No, I haven't. I'll tell you what, what a time to get your famous five minutes when all the hairdressers are closed, eh? (laughs) Holy unfair. Good point, good point. Um, (laughs) Do you foresee... 
and I guess the, the acid test is going to be in two weeks, isn't it, when the schools yeah. open or when this podcast goes out? Yeah. And then is the impact how that's affected young people emotionally, psychologically? Yeah. What kind of things are, are you anticipating? Anything? Have you got any newer kind of pastoral? Yeah. Uh, approaches to, to anticipate this? Yeah, we do. I mean, our pastoral team, to be fair, has worked right the way through lockdown. So for our more kind of vulnerable kids, they've done daily phone calls and that kind of thing right the way through the whole thing. So we've kept up that work and we're aware of some emerging issues. You know, there was a bit of a peak in domestic violence nationally and locally. And we also know that we've got some young people who are, who are really anxious now, you know, some who are, are quite scared about coming back to school because they're not clear enough in their own heads yet about how safe it is. Um, yeah. And we know we're going to have to work hard with our community now in terms of making sure they feel safe. We've messaged parents throughout when we've been putting our risk assessments together. We've also engaged a counsellor who's going to be working with us at least two days a week. So we've got quite a lot of stuff in place, ready to go. And actually, that's not just for the kids. Some of our staff were shielding. We've had some pretty vulnerable families on that side of it as well. So, yeah, we're, we don't know exactly you know, what, what it will be like. But what we do know is is people have had a really tough time of it and we've got stuff in place. Obviously, the parks have opened again and I've taken yeah. my kids along. And, and the littlest one, it's like she's forgotten how to play with other children. Oh, do you know what I mean? It's that there's a social thing where some young people may, maybe particularly if they're not that maybe confident socially or, or they might yes. be making a transition from primary to senior uh, yeah. that have kind of lost a few sort of skills that they might need a little bit nurturing yeah. and coaxing, reminding of. Yeah, absolutely. So year seven will be in, in the first week in September yeah. for two days on their own so that we can actually help ease them in and they're not facing like 800 children in a building. And they, they're the ones that have come out of year six with a really unsatisfactory experience, haven't they? They never got to finish their, their primary education, really. And they've not been socialising as much as they would have been. So, yeah, we know we've got some of that stuff to deal with, absolutely. How has it been kind of being ahead of a, a massive school, you know, God knows how many staff, how many pupils in your school? All told, right the way through, is over a thousand. How many teachers? Uh, 65. So you're overseeing all of that. That's quite a big responsibility. And then, you know, a massive global pandemic comes in. How has it been, genuinely, how has it been for you having to, obviously you have to put that united front up. Has there been moments when you felt, oh, I can't cope or? I think I'm fairly used to pressure. You know, I'm in my 10th year as a a head. Um, But I have to say the last two weeks trying to manage the chaos that was taking place around results that's probably the most stretched I think I've ever felt that was worse than the 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 lockdown stuff when it hit yeah really yeah absolutely absolutely almost worst two weeks of your yeah um, genuinely because you felt powerless to kind of address it and and no one mess do you know what I wrote to parents twice in twice in the same day at one point contradicting myself because it was literally changing by the minute and if and I just felt like these young people haven't been dealt with terribly well, I think, through the, you know, through year 11 and the, and the way it's panned out. The emotional yeah. impact. I mean, I watch the news and seeing, you know, kids in tears and yeah. they're feeling like their whole kind of dreams have been shattered. Yeah. Presumably you must have seen that firsthand. What was that yes. like? Yeah, really, really tough, I think. So we were very fortunate at Merchants with our A-levels because we've got quite a small cohort. So essentially the algorithm wasn't applied. So most of my A-level students got what they thought they were going to get. In our partner school, Colson School for Girls, 
they were yeah. hit really hard by it. I sort of have a, a link with them because I'm secondary lead for the trust as well as head at Merchants. You know, and we had some really devastated young people there. It's being put right now, you know, but that, that was really tough when you've got young people who are expecting to go off and do a medical degree, suddenly right. find they can't. In the end, of course, it's been reversed, but they might have to wait a year now. What, yeah, what happened in, in terms of the results now? They've, they're cancelling that. You know, how are they assessing it now? So for A-level and BTEC, they're, they're now going with teacher assessment. The teachers, right. Will that be done quickly and in enough time for some of those young people to still go to the university they wanted to go to? So if the reversal on the A-level front did happen quite quickly, but... Yeah. There was a, a bit of bit of a mess because, of course, when it initially happened, the universities or a lot of universities filled their places, yes. which meant that that's great that the students have now got the grades they should have. But they're reapproaching those universities, but some of them are full now. So what some of the universities are doing are saying, absolutely, we'll honour your place, but we're at capacity now. We'll offer it to you next year. So there's there's some of that taking place. And in your school, um, there's a there's a um, infamous statistic I think that came out that Hartcliffe, in particular as a community, had but in terms of how many young people going to university yeah. compared to other places. Was it what was the percentage? Can you remember what it was? I can't, but it, it's the lowest in the country. It, it's the lowest in the country because because the counter argument sometimes is when I hear people say, "Yeah, but you know, in, that you know, we need more apprenticeships. Academia is not for everybody, and we need to support in other industries." Uh, that we've that we've neglected do you think that's true or do you think that's just a way of saying actually working class people shouldn't go to university I think it's a, a way of trying to rationalize it and I think sometimes when people are saying those things that they, they don't necessarily fully understand the implications of what they're saying however I think what we need to be doing is making sure our young people have the choices if I can make sure that the kids come out at the end of of their schooling with us and they can go to university if they want to or they can take a higher apprenticeship. That That's my aim. Yeah. We are definitely getting more kids into university because we've grown the post-16 provision. So one of the key strategies that I that came with me when I joined the academy was that I wanted to keep the post-16 provision open. It's the only sixth form in South Bristol. Is it, it really? Yes, it is the only sixth form in South Bristol. If you want to go to sixth okay. form anywhere else, you've got to get, get your buses across the city, which doesn't work for everybody. And there were just 20 kids in it when I first arrived. There are now 110. Do you get kids now that come from other schools to your sixth form? We're starting yeah. to, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I intend to continue to develop that. Great. In terms of attainment in schools, and th- this has quite possibly got lost in the representation conversation, that the, the most failing demographic in education is white working class boys. Correct. Very difficult question to answer, I know, because it's very complex. But uh, why do you think that is? Some of it is to do, I think, with the changes in the way we we have addressed education and curriculum and some of those things. And I think that we we've got to look really carefully at assessment. So historically, continuous assessment tends to favour boys more than it does girls and terminal assessment tends to favour girls more than boys and and in reality what we need is a mix don't we you know to ensure that that the style of assessment we're using enables everybody to demonstrate their successes and I think beyond that we've got to look probably a bit more deeply at at the kind of representation we've got in schools I mean if we've got a range of families that that maybe there there isn't a male role model in sometimes and actually you might need to see a few more male teachers within primary schools. Kids tend to want to see 
see the thing that they are like, don't they? And, and they will kind of try and find that that image and that person to look up to. So I think it, I think you're right. It is a really complex issue, but we mustn't lose it. We need to continue to strive to address it. You have to be sensitive and delicate and diplomatic about this, but I think sometimes there has been a real push and drive, and quite rightly so, for specific minority groups yeah. um, in, in education. And, you know, there has been um, the kind of levy and reality of of institutional racism across the country, which includes the education system. I, I, I wonder if some of those white working class boys have almost been a little bit kind of forgotten about or kind of not prioritised enough. And, and maybe that's that this is the kind of result of that. The reality is social inequity exists, doesn't it? And it exists in all sorts of formats. And what we've got to make sure is that we, well, essentially, whatever race, colour, creed, gender they are, create enough opportunities for all of our young people. And we've got to make sure that there's representation so that everybody feels at home in those organisations. And just to go back to the Forest of Dean? Yeah, I was there this morning, which is how I got to the wrong side of the bridge. Yeah, I was dropping my, one of my sons off there. I find it a fascinating place. My uh, partner's boss is a forester. Well, no, sorry, he's not a forester, but he married a forester about 40 uh-huh. years ago. He has lived in the Forest of Dean for 40 years. They still call him the outsider. I Absolutely. Think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas I am it's a forester by birth and I have the right to open up my own coal mine should I ever want to do so. I do. Was that, what does that come with? The... Basically, if you're born within what they call the hundred of St. Breville's, you have free miners' rights. Wow. Something to fall back on. If teaching doesn't work out, I can mine. I can see that now. Could open it up as a, an education centre, couldn't you, for young people <laughs> to come and mine? I, I, you know, I doff my cap to you and your school and your teachers for everything that you've done over a whole kind of lockdown period because I know it can't have been easy. Yeah, and if anything, at least it's launched a media career for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the hairdressers are open now, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great. Thank you, Tan. All the best. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. the next episode it's all about the criminal justice system we talk gangs county lines drugs and stop and search with the head of the lammy review group bristol's desmond brain thanks for listening to bristol unpacked i'm neil mags and a big thanks to rosa eaton our audio producer adam cantwell corn our executive producer and blue dot for our music Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.